Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back again with the 2016 Ig Nobel Awards. We covered them last year, and we're we're back with more. Yeah, it's always a, always a fun chance to roll through some unique, at times humorous, at times uh, more important than you might think, scientific studies uh, from, I mean, they seem to dive pretty much uh, at any point during the last uh, several decades. They really do, yeah. So if you haven't listened to our previous episode, we'll just give you a brief update on what the Ig Nobels are. They happened last week on September 22nd. Uh, They take place at Harvard's, uh, this is Harvard University's Sanders Theater, which is the largest theater on their campus. I don't know why that was added to the press release. Uh, And they pack it to the brim with scientists and students and science aficionados. And basically... They go to research that is that is described as quote improbable research. Uh, they are awarded by a magazine called the Annals of Improbable Research, which is great. They have a wonderful web presence. Yeah, really cool magazine. If you enjoy uh, humorous takes, uh, but but respectful takes on science, and that's really one of the key things to remind everyone about the Ig Nobel Prizes. Yeah, it's not about belittling science. It's I mean it's conducted in large part by scientists. So. Um, yeah, there's a there's an appreciation for the work that's going on, but it's kind of the realization that science, as it is, expands, as this uh, slime mold of science expands through the maze of uh, of uh, of acquirable knowledge, it's going to acquire some unique bits that might uh, make you giggle a little bit. Yeah, and of course, their motto is it's about science that makes you laugh and then makes you think. Yeah. Now, the Improbable Research Group, as Robert just mentioned, they've got a magazine, they've got a website, they put out books, they have lots of videos. You can watch the whole proceedings on YouTube on their channel, which I did this morning. And you loved every second of it. Uh, we will talk about that a little bit later. Uh, and they even have a podcast now, which I was unaware of. Huh. Um, the theme of this year's contest was time, and I will hmm. make... Uh, I will make that theme obvious, unfortunately, as I describe what I saw. Is there anything else you guys want to add before I tell you what I watched, uh, on the proceedings? No, go ahead and complain. <laughs> <laughs> so those of you who heard last year's episode know I wasn't a huge fan of the, uh, the Ig Nobel's, uh, sense of humor. I like the Ig Nobel's on paper. Mm-hmm. Like when we're going through and we're you, looking you like at the each prize other's recipients. You're yeah, about. I do. Yeah. Not so much the ceremony itself. The ceremony itself drives me nuts. Yeah, it's just it's uh it's it's not my cup of tea. It, they, they tend to go for really silly silly humor. Right? Yeah, it's it's very in my opinion unfunny. Uh, there's a lot of puns. It's very, uh, what I would call NPR humor. Uh, uh like wait, it's kind of like that wait, wait, don't tell me. Yeah, it reminded kind me of, of wait, wait, don't mm-hmm. tell me the whole time. It's kind of sweet. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at one point, they do three, three separate joke operas about clocks, time, and time <laughs> ticking, and, t- and tick-talking of clocks. Uh, they also played, because time, clocks, ticking, they played tic-tac-toe between a brain surgeon and a NASA scientist. Okay, so it's a draw? I don't, you know, I was watching it, honestly, on double speed. I didn't catch who won. <laughs> 
Um, and, uh, the, but the, the interesting part was they brought the Boston roller derby team out and they skated onto stage and they finished the tic-tac-toe game, which was kind of cool. They also have this ritual, which they did last year too, where they all throw, everybody in the audience throws paper airplanes at one guy on the stage. <laughs> like he just wears like a, a big bullseye and goggles and everybody just hurls paper airplanes at him. So that's the kind of thing the proceedings are. It's kind of like a scientific, academic, uh, release valve. Yeah, yeah, it really does seem like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not my cup of tea. Look, there were hundreds of people in the audience. They were loving every minute of it. So I, I, I may be the odd man out here. If, if you're interested yourself, obviously go watch it. Um, but I will say the papers that we're going to talk about today that won these awards, pretty fascinating. There's yeah. some good stuff. I mean, here. they have their ritual. Our ritual yeah. is to, the three of us to come together and uh, divvy up the uh, the prize-winning papers, and each of us, uh, you know, roll it out. And we'll discuss them a little bit. So it's going to be a two-parter this week, it just is. like last last year, uh, where we're going to cover all the award winners. So speaking of, why don't we get into the first one, which uh, good old Robert Lamb is going to cover something about rats wearing pants. Oh yes, and and beyond. Uh, so this one's Rat Pants Beyond. This, this is Star this was Trek the, movie. The uh, reproduction prize. Yes, the, the reproduction the prize. Prize categories. Yeah, and it covers. It, it was also kind of like it was a way to honor um, a, a now deceased uh, researcher, Cairo University professor, Dr. Ahmed Shafik. He was a noted Egyptian sexologist and researcher. And uh, this is one, you know, a number, like I say, they, they dive back uh, into the into the, the history books a little bit on some of these studies. So it's not all going to be like fresh and new. It's going to be sometimes stuff that has been covered to varying degrees. Yeah. Um, Shafik's work in particular was, uh, I was familiar with it from Mary Roach's book, Bonk. Oh, which, okay. Uh, you know, covered <laughs> sex research. Yeah. And, uh, and former and, guest of the show, Mary yeah, yeah, she's been on a few times. Um, this particular um, study uh, was from '93, and it had to do with polyester pants wearing rodents. Well, oh, man, you know huh. you're gonna make rats wear pants. You make them wear polyester pants. Well, that's you're gonna see. That's key to to everything All right. in, in uh, Shafik's research. Have you guys ever worn poly just pure polyester pants before? I don't, I don't think know. I have. It's extremely itchy. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I don't know what my clothes are made of. <laughs> it could be it could be like endangered kangaroo fur. I have no idea. No, buy them at the your store. wife wouldn't let you buy endangered kangaroo shirts. I mean, if I knew that's what it was, I wouldn't buy it. <laughs> well, it's possible. It's possible that the reason you're not wearing polyester, and most of us are not wearing polyester, is that there's it, that nature has selected for non polyester wearing yeah. individuals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek, but. But this was actually the serious uh, matter of Shafik's uh, research. He looked into the possible effects of polyester on sexual activity, particularly as it relates to to the uh, male genitalia. Okay, of rats, rat male of genitalia, rats and humans. The, the oh, most, okay. probably most known for the rat specific uh, experiments, because any experiment that clo- that clothes animals, and there have been several that have done this, um, you know, are, are instantly going to catch our attention. So this is what he did. He dressed 75 test rats in pants, uh, which they wore for an entire year. Uh, one group <laughs> wait, wore... Wait, 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 wait. Did they wear them for an entire year? Or did they take them off to go to the bathroom or at night when they slept? Like Uncertain. But, um, <laughs> but they wore them. Okay. One group wore 100% polyester pants, another a 50-50 blend, and another a 100% cotton, and another 100% wool. And there was a fifth uh, control group that went uh, commando, I guess you'd say. Okay. So the result is is thus. Uh, 
Shafik discovered that rats dressed in polyester engaged in sex significantly less often than the rats in cotton or wool. His theory was that polyester generated electrostatic potentials that induced electrostatic fields in the inner workings of the rat penis, resulting in diminished sexual activity. Interesting. Wow. So his theory was that polyester containing pants just generated just you know kind of created this force field against sexuality right <laughs> while other text textiles did not huh and these potentials he argued um, it's better than a chastity belt well that's that's where he goes with the next study oh, he, really? he said all right if this is going on with rats yeah i mean the main concern here are the, the primary wares of polyester pants yeah which would be humans so he went on to conduct similar tests with human males uh and this is the specific language of the study uh, is is wonderful. Contra- the contraceptive effect of a polyester sling applied to the scrotum, <laughs> which was worn for twelve months, was also worn worn for a year by uh, by humans. How did he recruit for this? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, can you imagine being the poor volunteer for this, and you've got to wear polyester well, pants yeah, for like, a year? What's the compensation <laughs> schedule like? Well. Uh, I'm I'm not sure exactly how they were compensated, uh, <laughs> other than just you know the the, the zeal of getting to uh, contribute to science. Yeah, so, the prestige. Yeah, but but clearly this is going somewhere. Did, so did these? The, they were all male volunteers, I'm assuming. Yes. And did they want to have sex? Well, I assume. Uh, well, they they engaged in sex. See, the idea oh. here is that. Uh, this was not so much as looking at how you could keep males from male humans from having sex, right. but rather uh, what this could be a potential contraceptive. Yeah. So um, oh. in in uh, twenty in two thousand five, he published uh, effect of electromagnetic field exposure on spermatogenesis and sexual activity. Okay. So this was this was something of his of his life's work, I guess you'd say, and uh, and, uh, and and he attempted and he attempted to spin his findings off out into new methods of contraception. Okay. Uh, such as testicular suspension. So Ooh. this is the the whole polyester sling experiment with the with the humans uh really also playing on the, his work with the rats. And in the findings he presented, he he showed that there was a decre- decreased sperm count, there was a degeneration in the uh, uh semi-inferior uh, tubules and even hormone levels decreased huh. in uh, in individuals who wore the sling. Did they say if they were boxer like underwear between the sling or was the sling on, the sling is polyester and then they're wearing that under polyester pants as well uh this is just the sling so you can wear oh, whatever pants you oh, want okay. on top of it okay uh, is the the concept here but but here's the thing everything returned to normal six months later for the the test subject so he right. presented this as a a safe reversible acceptable method so huh. instead of um, you know instead of engaging in in other uh, contraceptive methods, yeah. you could just have the, the male in the scenario sling so his you just genitals. Force your children to wear a polyester sling well, if you the, don't want them children, to. But just just sexually <laughs> just active anybody. adults. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's it's amusing. Okay, so on one level, why is this funny? <laughs> because obviously, mice wearing pants are funny. Yeah, that's uh-huh. hilarious. But 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 it's actually polyester you, pants even yeah, funnier. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but, but then when you start looking at, at his, at his work with, with human males, um, you, you don't see much, there's not, nothing really in the way of follow up that I could find. Right. So I don't think anyone else has, has really taken the torch and run with it. Further research is yeah. required. But, but it, it presents this, this tantalizing possibility. Yeah. Because why not? Like why? Like look at all the, the the contraceptive pressure that's put on females in society. Yeah, sure. Is it that much to ask that a male sling his scrotum in a polyester sack? 
right. for a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, but based I don't on my it. experiences with polyester pants, it, it's uncomfortable. I mean, I, well, which I imagine uh, heaven forbid it be a little uncomfortable well, for the male. Well, that's what I mean is that, that <laughs> it contributes to this uh, result that we're examining here. Yeah. Not that I, I don't think I've ever worn polyester pants without underwear. I don't remember it, but uh, mm. I've definitely worn polyester pants and shirts before. They're, yeah, they're itchy, uncomfortable. They get really hot really quickly. Yeah. I don't think they uh, allow a lot of airflow. Yeah, it's but it's one of these areas where you, you have a scientist who is who's fall, he's following he's pulling on this thread, mm. following the research, and it's taking him to a, a possibility that that seems based on on his findings, it seems you know, ripe for use in human society. Yeah. But at the same time, like human society clearly is not ready for this the scrotal polyester sling. Yeah, I can't imagine like a planned parenthood campaign uh about polyester slings. Well I would think a big aspect of it would be how effective is it? Mm. Like, exactly at what rate does this uh prevent pregnancy right. compared to other birth control methods. Well his his findings presented a rather a rather encouraging um picture of of scrotal sling based contraception. Uh-huh. Like he had you know sexually active individuals who while they were wearing the sling for months on end was re- you know resulting in no pregnancies and then afterwards especially after that uh, 6 month readjustment period then they're then they're uh, they're 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 actually getting pregnant with their uh the, you know their, their respective spouses huh so like i say it's just it's just his research that we seem to have to go on on this nobody else has, has picked it up we don't have things to compare it to but it's 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 very interesting. Well, I say sexologists out there get to work trying to replicate this right now. Yeah, because I I, I want to know a few things here. I want to know if different materials have different results, uh, like wool slings or like a silk sling. Like, would some particular textiles be? Would they increase the likelihood of pregnancy? What about what about a chainmail sling? Oh. Yeah, well, I, that would be rough. I mean, the, rougher it's the than electrostatic polyester. potential that's key to it. Ah, so, so there you go, chain mail. Mm-hmm. Although wool would also probably generate a lot of static electricity. <laughs> Whew. Well, hey, everybody out there, uh, let us know. Get in on it. Um, maybe you can conduct your own experiments at home and let us know a year from now. Yeah, a number of his papers are readily available online. And like I say, he's been covered in the past by Mary Roach and others. Uh, so I, I would love to hear from anyone who uh, for whom this is a... Uh, you know, their area of research. Yeah, definitely. With that, why don't we take a quick break, and when we get back, Joe is going to tell us all about rocks. Okay, so we're back. Joe, what's your Ig Nobel Prize to talk about right now? Well, so the economics prize for this year went to uh, Mark Avis, Sarah Forbes, and Shellog Ferguson for uh, assessing the perceived personalities of rocks from a sales and marketing perspective. And the the study that they referred to, that they won for, was called the brand personality of rocks, a critical evaluation of a brand personality scale. Nice. So this kind of applies to our line of work. Yeah, I think this one is actually more interesting than it than it might seem at first yeah. but uh, now a lot of our older listeners are going to immediately think of pet rocks that's it, it that's all yeah. concerned pet rocks no it did not concern of. pet rocks at all though oh. pet rocks will come in okay. in a bit so uh so in marketing we got to back up 
there's this concept in marketing known as brand personality, and it's defined in the academic literature as, quote, the set of human characteristics associated with a brand. So what it means is you've got a brand like Holiday Inn mm-hmm. or Jack Daniels or Stuff a- to blow your mind. Yeah, sure. AOL, Butterball Turkey. All of these <laughs> can be perceived as having unique human character traits that would normally apply to a human being. Like, right. So you might think of a brand and say that brand is outdoorsy or sincere or trendy or hardworking, mm-hmm. down to earth, family oriented, masculine, feminine, upper class, you know, so oh, all is, these weird things. This is bringing like back so many like bad flashbacks of uh, meetings about brand construction over the last couple of years that I've had. Yeah. Not here, but just various, various workplaces. Yeah. But, but this is basically all the stuff that uh, anyone putting together a, a logo, yeah. an ad campaign or just a brand idea. You want to personify a, a, a company. Yeah, exactly. It's assumed that this actually matters in marketing because people in the field believe that consumers make choices based on their feelings about a brand personality. A lot of times you're going to buy a brand of vodka or something and, you, you know, you, you've got Absolute or you've got Stoli. And maybe you you can't even tell the difference in how they taste, but you know that one of them seems like a fun, young, hip person, and the other one seems like an older, intellectual, conservative person. And that might actually be the thing that makes the difference in your purchase decision. Not being a drinker, I don't really know. I, I just assume, I guess from the ads I've seen, that Absolute is the one that's the hip one, and Stoli is like uh, an older Russian lady. Yeah, this is... Uh... <laughs> An older Russian lady. I guess so. Okay. This is actually an example from one of the papers I'm going to re- oh, okay. refer to. So this new research, the, the paper that actually won the Ig Nobel this year, is mainly formulated to analyze and critique another very influential paper in the field. So I'm sorry I need to do a little background and unpacking in order for this to make sense. Uh, but uh, I think it'll be worth it. Okay, let's do it. So marketing experts have been talking about this idea of brand personality for at least 60 years or so. It goes back to the you know, 1950s. But the academic measurement of brand personality really changed in 1997 with a now highly cited, highly influential paper published in the Journal of Marketing Research called Dimensions of Brand Personality. And this paper was authored by a, a business professor named Dr. Jennifer Aker, who's now at Stanford. For business. Okay. And the point of Dr. Aker's paper was to, quote, establish a theoretical framework of brand personality dimensions and a reliable, valid, and generalizable scale that measures these dimensions. So essentially, she's trying to create a standard measure instead of just randomly coming up with a bunch of descriptive dimensions of personality on an ad hoc basis. Marketing researchers could measure the personalities of brands against each other using consistent categories of description. So let me see if I've got this. Like, it sounds like they were trying to move from a quanti, uh, sorry, a qualifiable model to something that could be quantifiable that they could actually analyze and look at for success. Well, it would, it, it would be quantifiable and I guess it would be qualitative too because it would involve right. qualitative judgments. But yeah. what Aker did is she took a series of consumer questionnaires and these categorization techniques to come up with standard dimensions of brand personality. And you'd have this questionnaire language that says, we would like you to think of each brand as if it were a person. This may sound unusual, but think of the set of human characteristics associated with each brand. We're interested in finding out personality traits or human characteristics that come to mind when you think of a particular brand. So 
from this process, she does a lot of research, and Aker comes up with five big dimensions of brand personality that are sort of congruous to no, to what's known as the big five human traits in psychology. You, you guys have heard of these before. Yeah. You know, you can think of a human as having various scores on the uh, categories of openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Ah, okay. So the big five uh, brand traits that she comes up with are sincerity, which the typified example here is Hallmark cards. Excitement, the example given is MTV. You can already tell this was a 1990 <laughs> oh, wow. study. Yeah. Competence, the example they give is the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> Sophistication, which they give guest genes. <laughs> And, really? Yes. And <laughs> it's a different time. And ruggedness, where they give the example of Nike tennis shoes. Okay. And then she concludes that pretty much all the major elements of personality that people are going to apply to brands can be grouped under these headings and then measured with standardized scores. And then thus we get this big model that's used in marketing research, the brand personality five factor model or the BPFFM. So, okay, fast forward back to the present. And this is where our study in question comes in. Uh, Acres brand personality scale is widely used in marketing and consumer behavior research. It's all over the place. People use it all the time, but it has met a lot of critiques. And this year's Ig Nobel winning paper provides one of those critiques. So what it is is that the authors are asking what I think is a smart methodological question. So you give somebody a survey and you say, think of a butterball turkey as if it were a person. How would you describe that person? People are going to be able to come up with some descriptions, but how do you know those descriptions that they have come up with are really feelings that they already had about the Butterball Turkey brand? Mm. What if the fact that you're putting people in a scenario where they have to describe the personality of Butterball creates this perception of personality? Right, so you're priming them. Yeah, you're essentially generating this perception through the experiment itself rather than testing how people already feel. Which is a variable that's to skew your results. Yeah, and yeah. this this depends on some uh, some factors that they point out in their papers, such as acquiescence bias, the tendency of test subjects to sort of just go along with whatever's being suggested by the experimenter. Okay, and then also the problem of forced choice. So you've got these Likert scales that people use in studies all the time. Rate on a scale of one to five. Uh, how descriptive this word is of butterball turkey. So, or let's say Campbell soup is, is Campbell soup confident on a scale of one to five? Mm. There's no option to say this question is meaningless to me. The, <laughs> the question and answer structure forces you to rate how confident or not you think Campbell's soup is. And if you don't have an opinion, you might default to one, but yeah. then that reads as it's not confident. Right. Or you might say, well, go to the middle of the scale. I guess I give it a three, but that just makes it look like you think it's moderately confident. Um, and it, there's just not an option to say it does not make sense to me to characterize chicken noodle soup as confident or not confident. I feel like we encountered this a lot with like online yeah. quizzes and yeah. You know, oh yeah, like the, we talked about goals. this on the last episode. Uh, the, the what Game of Thrones character are you? Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so the structure of the experiment itself sort of is is driving us toward generating data that might not be reflective of anything people are really feeling in reality. Okay. 
but anyway, so to quote from the abstract of the study, they say, this article considers the possibility that Acre's 1997 scale methodology creates the brand personality or BP that it measures. And then using pictures of rocks as stimuli, this article applies the principles of Acre's methodology to examine the brand personality of rocks. So what kind of rocks are we talking about it's here? It's three pictures of rocks. They well, didn't, they, they didn't get to handle the rocks. I think you're selling them short by just calling them rocks. These are these are some mineral specimens. I, yeah, I mean, I is this like, you know, they're like solid rocks. Quartz or something like that that you're going to find I in mean, like I a can, cave? Or? I can show you here. So there's oh, like okay. one kind of spongy looking rock, and yeah. then there's this one smooth, dark, obsidian-type rock, and then there's this quartzy kind of rock. Would you say that's about right? Yeah. Yeah, so they all have very different personalities, I would say. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. But the, as they say, rocks are chosen as stimuli as they do not have any obvious commonalities with brands or antecedents of BP formation. So, Christian, you might be able to look at these rocks and yeah. say, yeah, that rock, that has some personality, but you did not previously have have opinions about the personalities of rocks. Yeah, probably not. Well, I mean, I guess so before you even showed me the picture, I said quartz because I was like thinking of I, I used to have like a quartz uh, like, I don't know, mantelpiece on my desk when I was a little kid. And you thought it was really confident? No, but like I just associated it as being like kind of cool and wonder, wondrous, uh-huh. you know. I like, mean, we, we can't help as humans, but to personify any yep. and everything. Yeah, and, you I kind mean, of apply and, subjectiveness. Yeah. And if you've ever been to a mineral museum, oh, yeah. I mean, it's loaded with, with specimens with a lot of personality to them. I mean, I, I and in the act of contemplation, you sit there and you imbue these characteristics on mm-hmm. them. But before you're there contemplating them, you don't have these feelings about rocks in the abstract. So what, what did they find? Well, so I first got to point out, this was maybe my favorite aspect. This was not the first study to apply the five-factor model to rocks. Okay. A previous study in 2005 applied the model to rocks, but in that older study, the scientists first dressed the rocks up with anthropomorphic uh, <laughs> decorations. Oh, see, I thought you're... Wait, you, you are saying they put pants on them. They, they made them pet rocks, basically. Okay. Uh, and this this could be seen as skewing the results toward personification. So mm. this new study is the first study to apply the model to naked rocks, Nude rocks. with no faces or anthropomorphic traits of any kind. Mm. So um, their method, they got 225 test subjects in New Zealand. They gave them a BPFFM style Likert scale. Same thing where they just they just did the five factor model. But instead of saying Coke, Pepsi or Dr. Pepper, they gave them three pictures of rocks. Okay. That's exactly what they did. Uh, four s- test subjects withdrew because they were having a hard time personifying the rocks, but the rest did fine. And when given a version of the BPFFM, the rocks got some distinct scores emerging. For example, Rock H scored really good on ruggedness. Which one's scored- Rock H? Which one is that one, Robert? Uh, it looks kind of, it has like a very sandstone, spongy look to it. So it yeah. looks abrasive. You yes. Know? Yeah. So H scored really good on ruggedness, but scored low on sophistication. They did mm-hmm. not think it was sophisticated. Okay. Uh, rock G was rated the least sincere. Which one is Rock G, Robert? Oh, it is black and it's gleaming. It's that obsidian looking piece. Uh huh. It, it doesn't, I get, I get, I never thought about its sincerity though. 
Yeah. Hmm. Well, apparently you could if, <laughs> if prodded to do so, because the second study, they did two experiments. The second one, they did the same thing again, but they introduced a subjective element or a, I guess a descriptive element. They just asked the participants to, in their own words, explain their thought process when rating the personalities of rocks. Okay. I want to give some quotes. Rock G, again, that's the obsidian looking one. Mm-hmm. Uh, some uh, A quote from one of the participants is, some young businessman, slick and smart but devious, probably would backstab you if he could make his way up the corporate ladder faster. Carries a black briefcase, slick hair, quick thinker and quicker talker. Not a good dude, though. Wow, that's a great imagination, though. Uh-huh. Seriously. I mean, like, I could try to personify it, but I would have just come up with, like, I don't know, a couple adjectives. That was a whole backstory. It's a great deal of color theory. In yeah, it, yeah. It? Uh, another one, rock eye. Which one is eye? Uh, it is a glean. It's like a mineral, crystally composite that yeah. I'm. I, I'm looking at black and white, but I am assuming it's like purple or something. Yeah, it's quartzy. Kinda. Okay. Uh, and the the one of the test subjects described this rock as liberal, attractive, and female. A young person, maybe mid thirties, who was very attractive when she was younger, possibly a model, has her own way of thinking with a somewhat grounded confidence. Enjoys organic food. Oh, hello huh. quartz. <laughs> uh, but there were also <laughs> a, another interesting thing was that the rocks had some consistent themes emerging. People didn't just make up random whatever. Yeah. Rock G was pretty consistently described as a businessman, while another rock. That's the obsidian one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Rock H was often described as a farmer or rural worker. That's weird because when I look at Rock G, I think of the Kaaba stone. So I think of uh, of religious and spiritual overtones as Mm -hmm. opposed to business. I looked at it and I immediately thought of the occult, that it was like the kind of thing that you would have in like a witch's circle or something. I see it and think dragon glass. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) nice. There you go. It's all so subjective. It's just, it's dipping depending on on whatever you're backloaded with. Yeah. Uh, But so anyway, in their concluding discussion, they say, quote, however viewed, the findings highlight that the BPFFM methodology is at least able to create personality in stimuli which share no obvious antecedents to the formation of brand personality. Uh, this is evident in the significant differences between the rocks at the trait, facet, and factor level. The BPFFM was described as a valid and generalizable measure of BP, and this study saw it generalized to pictures of rocks. Uh, I thing, like this study. Yeah, I think this is really good, and I have some things I want to say about it. Uh, first of all, I do want to say it's not to prove that consumers don't actually personify brands. It's just a critique of this method of yeah. testing for it, because it's showing that the dominant existing method in marketing research would have a hard time telling the difference between a consumer who naturally tends to personify a brand, say, in the store or in their regular life, right. and a consumer who's forced to unnaturally come up with a personification of a brand by the conditions of an experiment, the latter of which could be inferred to have very little relevance to consumer behavior. Right, because when I pick out a brand of tea, I'm not just off the spur of my head writing a, like a, 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 a yeah. 100 word, uh, 200 word statement on how yeah, it feels. This Maybe tea slicked back though. hair, black briefcase, not a good dude though. <laughs> huh. Now I'm starting to think that maybe I should start thinking about the things I buy more often and write a little like backstory for, uh-huh. for each of them so that, cause maybe I'm hanging out with some uncouth, uh, items. Mm hmm. Uh, okay, so last two points. Okay. One, we got to hit why it's amusing. I think the ma- the best way to sum this up is it's amusing because this is verbatim what the researchers told the participants. Quote, 
We would like you to think of each rock as if it were a person. This may sound unusual, but think of the set of human characteristics associated with each rock. If you see a descriptor and you have no sense of how it applies to the rock, look at the rock picture again and think of it as if it were a person. See, so now that I hear that, now like the long uh, descriptions of these rocks make a little bit more sense. It's yeah. like they're in their own way, they were primed as well right. by but the study. This is exactly a mirroring of the language you'd give yeah. to people in, in personifying brands. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, but then there's the question of why it's important. And I actually do think that I'm not usually very interested in marketing research, but mm-hmm. I found this study very interesting, especially because uh, because it was a critique of methodology that I thought was very smart and because it's an t- interesting and uncommon type of study, which is it's a reductio ad absurdum study. Mm. Uh, so the reductio ad absurdum, you, you know this from rhetoric, Christian, right? It's a rhetorical tactic of showing that your opponent's premises or methods are flawed by demonstrating that they can be used to prove conclusions that are obviously false. Yeah, it's like a, a you break apart the logic of their argument. Yeah, yeah. you show that if, <clears throat> and I, also if show... I continue to follow your logic, it would lead to absurd conclusions. Yeah, and it does damage to the the quality of the character of whoever you're arguing against. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, uh, the reductio goes this way. If your brand marketing methodology yields the conclusion that pe- people think of a previously unknown collection of rocks as each having distinct personalities, there's something wrong with your test method. Nice. Uh, and I just wanted to compare this actually to another previous Ig Nobel winner from from years back that I thought was another good example of the reductio ad absurdum study. It was a critique of certain types of fMRI oh. scanning that uh, critiqued this by scanning the brain activity of a dead salmon. Oh, I, I think I remember this one. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this was great. It was another reductio. It was yeah. like, OK, well, look at what's going on in the brain of a dead fish uh, oh. when certain things are done to it. Obviously, there's no thinking going on in the brain of a dead fish. What they were trying to show was that fMRI, when not used very carefully, can generate false positives. And so you've got to control your data very, very rigorously. Unless there's a ghost of a dead fish being scanned. I guess then that's true. Then also. your results are in big trouble. Uh, then you get into some serious questions Go- about the ghost continued uh, consciousness of the dead sam. Yeah, ghost but, fish are constantly messing with science. i got to give them credit. I found this way more interesting than I was expecting to find a marketing Research. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I often love the marketing ones. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if marketing research is really well done, I think ultimately like it reveals something about the human condition, right? And in this one, like as we were just talking about the sort of subjective nature of how we personify everything around us. Yeah. yeah. Or at least that we can. Yeah. Yeah. But Christian, I know you've got the next one. Why, why don't you tell us about the view from between the legs? Okay. Uh, so this one, this is a good one actually in terms of like the science of it, but it's a little gimmicky, which is probably why, uh, it won an Ig Nobel award. Paper is called Perceived Size and Perceived Distance of Targets Viewed from Between the Legs, colon, Evidence for Pro Prioceptive theory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what are we talking about with view between the legs? Okay. So I, I needed to actually like really dive in here to understand what they meant from a view between the legs. Mm-hmm. So they are talking specifically about when you as an individual bend over and look between your own legs with your head upside down, <laughs> but Within, and I'll, I'll get to this, but within their research, they had controls, obviously. So they also had people 
lying flat and looking between somebody else's legs or uh, tilting their heads in certain ways. And this this will be, this is actually kind of important. <laughs> It'll become important when I reveal how so it works. So is out. one looking at oneself or are you simply looking past your legs at an in like an upside down world? You're looking past your legs. So okay. the things that are most important here is they want to they're investigating perceived size and perceived distance when you're looking between your own legs. Okay. Um, <laughs> they used three comparisons and there were five targets that were presented to these subjects from between 2.5 and 45 meters away. They tested 90 observers to judge how they perceived size and distance from between their legs. All right. So these are the three comparisons. In the first one, they had 15 observers upside down looking between their own legs. Another 15 viewed the, the objects while, uh, the, the, this is a study while erect. So while they're standing up straight, um, not looking between their legs. Results showed that inverting the head lowered the size and scale for distance. So, so when you look between your legs, they, they, they saw that you had less of an ability to judge how big something was and how far away it was. Hmm. And, and you thought of it as being closer and smaller. So I imagine this raises questions about why that is. Like, is it because the head's upside down or because yeah. of the framing of the legs? Yeah, or what? like my yeah. instant thought is that like the plane that is normally the, the ground becomes the plane of the sky. Ah. That's sort of a natural. That's a good theory. I don't think they address huh. that, but I will get into what their hypotheses are. Um, one of the things that they were asking themselves, though, were... Were these results due to the inversion of the retinal image hmm. or body orientation? Uh, so they did some other studies. Comparison two, they took 15 observers who were upright and they gave them these goggles that had prisms in them and it made it so that their visual field flipped 180 degrees. Oh, weird. And then they huh. took 15 people standing upright wearing goggles that were hollow, that had no prisms and they compared those results in both they were able to judge size consistently. Distance they found to be, quote, a linear function of physical distance. Not quite sure what that means, but I think it was basically around the same. Okay. Comparison three, 15 people wore the prism goggles again, but this time they bent their heads forward, while 15 other people wore hollow goggles but laid on their bellies. This showed a low degree of size constancy and a compression of the scale for distance. So, again, uh, things that were further away seemed to be nearer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they ran all the distances and subjects through this analytic program called AMOS. And there there was some serious math involved in this paper. Like as I was reading through it, I was there was a lot of it that went over my head. There was a lot of math. So these I mean, this wasn't just some like willy nilly research. They really Mm -hmm. had their methodology nailed down. All of this helped them hone in on what variables may have been affecting the perception of the observers. So their conclusion was this. The perceived size and perceived distance are affected by an inversion of body orientation, but not by retinal image orientation. And they Mm. got there because of the whole goggles thing. Okay. They also said that perceived size and perceived distance are independent of one another. So those two things aren't necessarily connected. So this, I imagine, would uh, earlier you mentioned that this was in some way connected to proprioceptive theory, right? Like the, yeah. the idea about uh, the sense we have of where our body parts are in relationship yeah, in to one space, another. Yeah. 
so so they're sort of saying that we make visual judgments with more than just our eyes, like that yep. the feeling of the body is involved in making decisions about what we're viewing with our vision. Exactly. They said that this is an example of what's called proprioceptive information in which we take in our sensory data, but our body could be bending or our neck could be tilting or we could be raising or lowering our eyes in different ways. And all of these things influence our spatial perception. It's possibly also connected to our tactile senses interacting with our visual ones. So in a certain qualified sense, you sort of see with your butt. Yeah, <laughs> although I, I here's the thing that I got from this. The actual, like, bending over and putting your head between your legs, I think, was less important than the idea of being upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, so... But yeah, I mean, where your butt is in space while you're looking at something, I guess I was can just influence being, your bo- your body's perception. Yeah, I guess I was just being cheeky about the butt. You, you Were see you being with, cheeky? You, you see with your body. <laughs> <laughs> you do, yeah. So at the Ig Nobel's, uh, the professor, one of the main professors on this, his name was Atsuki. Higashiyama, I believe, he mm-hmm. accepted the award. He then bent over and demonstrated the effect. I watched this on the uh, thing. He received, uh, these were the awards they won, by the way, this year, a 61-second clock. Hilarious. <laughs> That's right, a good guys? one. Uh, an award paper, and they received a 10 trillion Zimbabwean bill, which apparently isn't a real thing. So it's worth, <laughs> worth nothing. Uh, this guy was then joined by other Nobel winners who all on stage and in front of their scientific peers stuck their head between their legs to perform their own empirical study. Then he was escorted off stage by human alarm clocks because he exceeded his allotted one minute time. Huh. You know, I can't help but wonder if, if one engaged in this uh, body position either constantly yeah. or on a consistent basis. If one would have a better, uh, like a, like a more one to one comparison, um, you know, of their, their proprioceptive uh, experience. Yeah. I think you're right, actually. And there's some evidence in the paper that that could be the case. Uh, um, it's like maybe yoga, uh, participants yes. because that's a, a common pose when you're going through. Like if you're in that. handstand all the time mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Why is this amusing? How, uh, because <laughs> you, to conduct this study, you're essentially mooning whoever the subject is, right? As mm-hmm. well, I mean, assuming you have your pants on, I don't know about the rats that were involved. If they had rats involved in this study, uh, they did get a bunch of people to do it on stage, like I said. And then they also asked everybody in the audience to do it at the Ig Nobel Prize, uh, ceremony. Um, a number of people went out into the audience, into the aisles and bent over and looked between their legs. Huh. So that's an example of Ig Nobel humor at play. But here's why it's important, okay? So this research was influenced by the work of a guy named Hermann von Helmholtz, and he conducted similar perception studies over a 100 years ago. Now, uh, the other thing, too, that I want to mention, th- these were Japanese scientists who won this. This is the 10th year in a row that Japanese scientists have won a prize at the Ig Nobels. Hmm. So um, there's something about the research that's being conducted in Japan that's just inherently interesting to these the Ig Nobel committee. I'm not huh. quite sure why. We now know that while inverted, we perceive things as smaller and the distance to them appears to be smaller, right? But the weird side result of all of this is that when observers bent their head between their legs and then bent their heads 
forward while they had their heads between their legs, the perceived size actually decreased while the viewing distance increased. So it actually distorts our visual sense even more than we think it does. Huh. Well, see, this is very important actually for yoga classes because <laughs> you're getting into this pose yeah. and you're essentially everyone's staring at everyone's butt. Yep. And this this has real world consequences for butt perception. Exactly. How big it is, how far away it is, all these things. The the way that I was applying it, I didn't quite go to the yoga butt thing, uh, Robert, but I, I, I thought that it was probably important to zero gravity studies. Mm. And then mm. maybe yeah. athletics. And this was the thing that immediately popped in my mind. What if you're like Hawkeye or Green Arrow or Katniss uh, Everdeen? You're like one of these characters is a really good archer. And you are trying to shoot a target accurately while you're flipping in midair upside down. So this is going to affect how far away you think something is and, and how big you think it is, right? I seem to recall Green Arrow shooting, uh, wait, was it Green Arrow? I don't know. One of those guys with a bow. Yeah. The one who's in, uh, uh, the Dark Knight Returns when he shoots a kryptonite thing at oh, Superman. Yeah. That's Green he's, Arrow. He's yeah. like upside down, isn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Like hanging off. And a he fire also only has something. one arm, I think, in that yeah. case too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so you would assume that if you are one of these expert archers who's really good at shooting, even when you're upside down, that you would be aware of this theory so that you can always hit your mark. <laughs> uh, there are also two causes that they they speculate on, and this gets back to what Robert was just talking about. The first is autolithic stimulation in the inner ears could be getting disturbed, and our head, when we're flipped upside down, gets congested with blood. Also, as I mentioned earlier, our retinal image is reversed from left to right and inverted up to down, right? Hmm. It's also thought that for consistency, we learn all of these visual skills upright from birth. So, yeah, Robert's right. Maybe we can be conditioned to be more sensitive in an upside down position rather than in an upright position. So if you were upside down all the time, you'd just eventually get used to it and your your perception would become more accurate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like maybe uh, if you walked around in handstand all the time or something like that. I mean, uh, I've been to yoga classes where I've seen people who are like so proficient at handstand that they can pretty much just like, you know, exist in it at all times. I wonder how long though it takes your mind body relation. I guess is the word for this kinesics. Um, that like how long it takes for those to align together so that your sense of perception, uh, is what it would be if you were upright. Yeah, I mean, I guess you, you, if you, you could get used to seeing the inverted world. It's when you're, you're, you're fooled into seeing it the wrong way. I yeah. think where it really throws us off. There's a, there's a video piece that, uh, that I saw at, uh, at the, actually at the Met, uh, when we were up there for the, the, the Star Trek, uh, yeah. mission, uh, mission New York. And the video was of a suspension railway in Germany. And, but they had inverted the, the footage. So when you're looking at it, especially if you're just kind of casually seeing it, it has the the appearance of a train, like a normal, uh, typical train okay. running through an upside down world. Ah, uh, I'm okay. sorry, Robert. After your earlier discussion about rats with pants, I can't hear the word suspension anymore <laughs> without thinking of testicular <laughs> suspension. <laughs> what does that look like upside down? Ooh, I don't know. You when you start piling these studies on top of each other, you really it really raises some questions. Let's conduct some experiments. We'll take some pictures and we'll put them on our <laughs> Instagram page. Uh, the last thing I do want to say about this study is it, it, one of the other reasons why this is important is it gives us a greater understanding of our perception in our 
normal upright state, right? And the way they described it is they said in their terms, the judged distance is proportional to the objective distance under a natural environment. Hmm. So it gives us a little bit better of an understanding of how we understand size and distance just in our everyday lives, too. Yeah. I wonder if this has um, ramifications for any, like, virtual worlds as well. Oh, yeah, I bet it would, right? Like, you would take this and apply it to the programming hmm. when you're uh, programming, like, a game or an environment yeah. for those goggles. Yeah, certainly. Hmm. All right, so let's let's move along from the inverted world to an, an, another um, strange perceptive scenario. Okay, and that is of course the world of mirrors, um, which I, I think I was I was talking to, uh, with you and a friend in New York about this about uh, about mirrors in our life, yeah, and about how there we take them for granted. Studies have shown that most people don't really know how a mirror works, yeah, and we just kind of. We, we just grow to accept the weirdness. We kind of push the strangeness of this mirror person out of our head. We accept that our, our hair actually parts on that side of our body when it actually does not. And then we have the occasional haunted mirror movies such as Oculus. Oh, or, yeah. Uh, or that fabulous Stephen King story, um, the, the Reaper's Image. Oh, I love yeah. that one. Yeah. We have these Torah stories that kind of serve as a, like a cultural release valve for all of this buried anxiety about how creepy it is that we yeah. have mirrors all over our world. That's yeah. my take on it anyway. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think there's something inherently bothersome about mirrors. So almost like a doppelganger that's mm-hmm. a reverse version of you. You know what they also do this in? Uh what is it? Poltergeist three when they're in the skyscraper and the mirror versions of themselves like come out from oh, wow. the from the other side. Oh. That's the one with Tom Skerritt. Oh. That's good. Hmm. Well not really. It's not good, but it's worth watching. Another, another weird thing is, have you ever tried to explain or put into words why it is that words read backward in a mirror? Like, even if you can picture it and understand yeah. correctly why this is the case, it's hard to explain. What yeah. about Bloody Mary? Yeah, Bloody Mary is another one. There is. We actually have an older episode uh, from uh, back when Julie's co-host talking about some of the mirror weirdness and, yeah. and that's that's one of them because part of it is you stare into the mirror long enough and your mind begins to see new details yeah especially with the bloody mary thing you spin around too which yeah. uh, related to the last study is probably filling your head with blood in a different way huh. so your perception is different as well well like i say we we begin to realize how weird mirrors are if we stare at them long enough if yeah. we watch haunted television shows about them yeah. but also when we 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 clinically study the results of perception through mirrors. Okay. I imagine, I imagine a number of our listeners and, and you guys as well have, uh, have heard of the, the use of mirrors to treat phantom limb syndrome. Huh? I have not. Okay. No, that's interesting. All right. So this was, uh, this was, this is not the, the Ig Nobel prize winning. Study. Okay. This is the one that, that, that precedes it. All right. And this was, uh, this is the work of, uh, V.S. Ramachandran. Uh, and he helped, uh, he would figure out that, uh, hey, if you can, uh, you can use a box with two mirrors in the center, one facing each way, and you can use this to help alleviate phantom limb pain. Hmm. And when, and this is when pain, patients who have, uh, you know, suffered an amputation right. or an injury, uh, they still feel, uh, sensations and pain of that missing limb. Um, this is what, um, V.S. Ramachandran had to, had to say about it. Uh, quote, many phantom arms are paralyzed in a painful position. If a mirror is propped vertically 
uh, in the uh, sagittal plane and the patient looks at the reflection of his or her normal hand, this reflection appears superimposed on the felt position of the phantom. Remarkably, if the real arm is moved, the phantom is felt to move as well, and this sometimes relieves the painful cramps in the phantom. Wow. Oh, our yeah. brains are weird. Yeah. <laughs> so you have no arm to move, but you feel you must move it. Right. You can't move it because you don't have it, but if you look at your reflection in such a way that suggests, because of the reversed image, yeah. that you're moving it, then it'll feel like it's moving. Now, I do want to add that not everyone is like 100% sold on this uh, this treatment method, yeah. but it but it does seem to have uh, a, a definite effect on some individuals. Huh. Okay. So where where the Ig Nobels come in, into play here is uh, a paper that came out in uh, 2013, uh, and this one uh, is titled Itch Relief by Mirror Scratching, a Psychophysical Study. Uh and so this one said, basically takes the whole mirror box treatment for phantom limb and says, hey, what about itches? Uh, they sought to extend these uh, original findings to the uh, perception of itch. Could you, in fact, use the perverse magic of a mirror to scratch an itch on the opposite side of your body? So if you, you have a left side of your face itch, could you scratch your right side? And then in the mirror, it's inverted and you could effectively, could you possibly scratch that itch? Robert, mm. you're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> and they, uh, they demonstrated this on stage at the Ignobles. Oh, they did? Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Because that's the thing. They found that you could indeed do this thanks to the, quote, transient, uh, illusory, intersensory, perceptual congruency of visual, tactile, and perceptive signals. So they used healthy participants and they injected like a histamine um, um, concoction under the skin of one forearm. Okay. And the first experiment utilized an actual mirror. The second, they used a video so that they could use a control group and just, you know, decide how they wanted to present the uh, the image, either as a you know an inverted reflection or just the straight up visual of what's occurring. And yes, they found that you could scratch a left side itch by scratching the right if you perceived it reversed in the mirror. Wow, that is that's pretty phenomenal. And uh, again, yet another example of how the ignobles are not just funny. Like there's there's some real w- weird but uh, interesting work going on here. Yeah, I mean it, it's amusing because it's an itch, right? Yeah, as opposed yeah. to a, a missing limb, and it's not dealing with the you know the very serious right, health matters of this this member. Meant. Yeah, I can't imagine that the ignobles <laughs> would like bring a bunch of amputees up on stage and right. and perform this. Yeah. So so on one hand, it seems like a like a fun, safe way to enjoy the absurdity of our whole relationship with mirrors. But the, 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 the cool thing is that there are potential applications here because sometimes an itch should not be scratched. Uh, if, if, if there are any other parents uh, out there listening to me, you probably have had this conversation with a child where you say, don't scratch that itch. Don't scratch that itch. Yeah. It's going to get, it's going to get raw. It might even get bloody and then it's going to hurt and you're going to be complaining about it even more. Don't scratch that itch. Uh, but even more so, you have you have individuals who suffer uh, from uh, focal skin diseases, mm-hmm. and they have an added incentive because they're they're often just dealing with severe itching uh, that are that's a part of their condition. And if they scratch the itch, they're going to further damage the already uh, afflicted tissue. Right. So you could potentially use this as a treatment method, allowing them to physically scratch uh, un 
damaged tissue. Yeah. And in doing so, like psychophysically scratch the itch that should not be damaged further. I'm thinking of like, uh, when you get like chicken pox and how that, itchy it is, right? That, and it, that seems like it would be a great uh, use. Yeah. yeah. Like, cause doesn't, at least this is how I remember it from when I was a kid. It sort of travels across your body, right? Yeah. Like it's not like it, I don't know. In some cases, maybe it does, but on, on me, it went from like, let's say like the left side of my body to the right side of my body. So, Put me in front of a mirror and I'll itch on the right side. That way I'm not irritating the already irritated skin on the left side. Poison ivy comes to mind too. Uh, this uh, is not yeah, something yeah. that I think they touched on in the article, but having had some severe ivy outbreaks before, yeah. like if you scratch it, it just gets gross and disgusting even more so and starts oozing everywhere. But mm. if I could potentially scratch the gross tissue by actually scratching unaffected tissue, that seems like something I would go for. I wonder how that figures into the people who think that you can spread poison ivy by scratching. I think I'm to understand that the medical science community does not agree that is true. That is my understanding as well. Like pretty much the 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 condition has spread, but it's it d- depends on the um, like the thickness of skin mm. and uh, and and what has been touched. Yeah, I mean, really, we could we could do a whole episode on poison ivy when it I guess when it gets summer again. But what if when you're looking into a mirror and you're scratching one side, you're actually it, you're actually scratching the wound on somebody in an alternate universe ah, and you're making their wound worse while just only scratching your normal arm? Oh, that gets into uh, there's a lot of ethics involved in multiverse theory here. Yeah. Well, that gets into to Borges's uh, uh, story uh, about the rainbow fish that yeah. he had where uh, the, the mirror world is an actual world. But we like defeated them in a battle a long time ago, and so now they're forced to just mimic everything we do. Mm, Whoa, yeah. Mirrors are crazy. Yeah. Even crazier, however, is our next uh, our next entry, which we're going to take a little break first, and then come back with. All right, we're back. So we've talked about perception, reproduction, marketing and economics, itching. I think now it's time to talk about biology. And this is one that uh, all three of us did a little bit of reading about. The the biology prize this year at the Ig Nobel's was presented to not a particular study or bit of research, but a couple of books that that were essentially about becoming beasts. And one of the two sort of took the limelight, I think, because he's been in the news a lot lately. Uh-huh. Uh, he's referred to as the goat man by a lot of people, but it turned, I almost missed it. Um, there was a guy named Charles Foster who was also awarded for writing a book called Being a Beast. Uh, and dur- during the award, he accepted it while the goat guy just stood next to him in his goat costume. We should and, say the goat yeah. guy's name. His uh, name is Tom. How do you pronounce that? Is it Thwaites? I think it's Thwaites. Yeah, it's Thomas Thwaites. Thomas Thwaites. In, uh, yeah, so they each wrote books. Which one? Let's talk about Foster first. Yeah, let's touch on Foster first. Uh, so Foster is an English writer who lived underground with badgers, swam with otters, and followed foxes around the alleyways of East London. He also tried to paraglide with swifts. I thought this was interesting because I looked him up, and previously Foster has... N- written a lot of like medical ethics and healthcare law books. Oh, is that right? Also on theology. 
Hmm, okay. Uh, so th- this was a kind of interesting place to see him go. But he claims to practice, at least in one interview I saw, he claims to practice, quote, literary shamanism. Huh. Well, you could say he's definitely getting in touch with the natural world here. Uh-huh. Uh, it, during his six weeks with badgers, he lived underground and ate earthworms while he was down there. Oh, uh, wow. Other examples from his book as cataloged in the New York Times book review, uh, to understand the lives of urban foxes living in London, he decided to head out onto the London streets and to, quote, wallow incontinently in his own mess <laughs> and to eat scraps of food that he finds discarded in the trash, such as pizza, fried rice and chips. And uh, during his otter episode, Foster and his six children decided to defecate outdoors and then examine each other's feces to try to distinguish each family member's leavings by the smell. All right, I didn't know that. That seems like it's borderline child abuse to me. Well, or at I least... I think these are older children, I think. Okay. <laughs> um, what? No, kids love uh, poop, so, you know, who's to say? <laughs> but it, I would say it certainly sounds to, like it borders on madness. I mean, uh, like biblical accounts, was it in uh, Nebuchadnezzar who... Went mad and pretend and thought he was a bull, or maybe. Oh, one. I don't remember. One of these, I'm sure our listeners will correct me. One of our biblical kings uh, in the, the Old Testament days would would think himself a bull. That's and cool. go running around and uh, and it was it was madness. But here it's science. Yeah, well, this is some. There maybe is something interesting to learn from trying to take on the the lifestyle of an animal. Now you can't fully do it because you can't be the animal, right. but. Right. Is is there maybe something to learn from living in a badger burrow underground and eating earthworms or running around the streets and eating garbage or smelling yeah. feces to try to get social cues? Foster argues in this book that his goal was to make people reflect on their own viewpoint of the world. So he thinks of all of this as being a travel book, like giving them different perspectives on life. He described the otters that he lived with as, quote, relentless killing machines who eat the equivalent of 88 Big Macs a day. And he said, being an otter is like being on speed because they have a requirement to constantly keep their calorie intake up. So all they do is crave. (laughs) And then ultimately, he sees human beings as acting toward the natural world with a lack of empathy. I can't disagree with him there. He says, if we acted that way toward each other, we would be considered psychopaths. I think I think this is interesting because I sort of respect the project of trying to understand what it's like to be an animal. But at the same time, maybe we just can't understand what it's like to be an animal. That that is uh, I think that's a very pervasive uh, argument, Uh, one made most famously by American philosopher Thomas Nagel, who asked the question, what is it like to be a bat? This was a 1974 article, and uh, he ultimately argued that it is impossible for any animal to comprehend another animal's mind state, specifically impossible for humans to really comprehend the mind state of any other entity. Uh, and he uses the bat as an example because it, it of course, it perceives the world through echolocation, mm-hmm. which even if you study like echolocation and you look at the, the graphs, and I was actually just reading... Um, uh, uh, a little animal book to my son where it, it, it doesn't use the term echolocation, but it talks about bats, uh, you know, in more simpler terms, like seeing the world by hearing these sounds, yeah. and, you know, really trying to break it down. But even like really breaking it down into very digestible nuggets, it's such an alien concept. Yeah. And so, so Nagel's point is, yeah, there's 
good luck, but you can't do it. I mean, you, you, you can't really put yourself in that mind state. You, what you can do is what we always do, right? The kind of, uh, Peter Rabbit scenario where we just imagine animals as being little people. Back to personifying yeah, things. Be it our pets or just wild animals with, yeah. with, you know, increasingly disastrous or tragic, uh, consequences. But of course, that's not going to stop us from trying, right? No, and I guess maybe that's where the, these uh, these studies, or well, these books, these experiences, these experiments, yeah, are handy in it. In that it's kind of uh, it's it's like let me try and put myself in the mindset, in the in the mind state of an animal, but in a more thoughtful way, like yeah. actually, actually. You know, tr- thinking about like their energy level, their their food, and what values they have on the the world they perceive. And and in both cases, uh, well, we should get to the other guy, Thomas Thwaites, what what he did. But in both cases, what I think is interesting is they went to physical lengths to mm-hmm. understand the experience. Like they were like, you can't just imagine being a fox or imagine being a goat. You actually have to change the way your body interacts with the world and the way you get your food and stuff like that to understand better what it's like to be these animals. Yeah. So goat guy, Thomas Thwaite, uh, you've probably seen him in the news lately. If you haven't, he's been covered everywhere. In fact, just yesterday, as I was doing research for this, a story popped up that a, a local news network somewhere here in the States was covering the Ig Nobels and they were trying, the broadcaster was trying to talk about uh, Goat Man and uh, she just absolutely lost it on air. Like they were showing the footage of him walking around in the Swiss Alps with other goats and she just lost it on air. She could barely What's funny make it about through. that. Well, have you seen the footage? <laughs> What's funny about a man being a goat? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's why it's amusing. Okay. So here's where my bias is going to come out. I'm just going to say this and then let's go through it. Mm-hmm. I'm not particularly fond of goat man. He's just, he's been everywhere lately. Uh, I'm kind of bored with him. And then also, uh, in relation to all these other Ig Nobel prizes, even a uh, foster, I feel like he's just like kind of performing this thing to get attention. And these people are actually like trying to understand the world in a different way. Well, I have to give him some credit, at least for his, one of his previous projects, the toaster project, mm-hmm. which, uh, which uh, some listeners may be familiar with. This is where he attempted to make a toaster from scratch. Uh, as an exercise and, you know, I guess unpacking just how removed we are from the primary skills involved in, in creating the objects we depend on, how dependent we are on manufacturing. And he published a book, uh, about this. And on the cover, there's a, a photograph of this just ungodly, blasphemous creation <laughs> of a toaster because, you know, he, since he had to learn to, you know, like smelt the metal, mine the ore, yeah. you know, all this, just build it for, utterly from scratch. It looks just abs- absurd and kind of, horrible but it supposedly functioned at least for a few seconds and we should say he himself is already a conceptual designer he's Mm -hmm. based out of england but that's his day job yeah Mm -hmm. uh but yeah so he wrote a book as well of course it is called goat man how i took a holiday from being human from the if this is correct according to amazon the publisher is the princeton architectural press so yeah, you and I were talking about this earlier. I'm I'm thinking that that's partially because of his background as a conceptual designer, but then also the prosthetics that were constructed for him. He didn't make them himself, but he commissioned somebody to build prosthetics for him so that he could live like a goat. So if you've seen, you have to Google this to see it, but he wears this 
costume basically that like uh gives him goat legs and he has like like he walks on all fours yeah like a goat with these stilts yeah and he has like the tilted head of a goat he wears like a helmet kind of thing he got a special goat gut that would help him digest grass so uh, what i what i read was he wanted that that but he wanted the goat gut but it didn't actually oh oh, okay uh, yeah yeah he didn't actually uh, achieve that was he constantly pooping like all goats i've ever been around you know what i have not maybe you have to buy the book, but <laughs> I didn't read anything about uh, his uh, fecal practices. Because that would be my first thing: is like to be a goat, you got to be prepared, be prepared right. to do a lot of pooping. Well, he's wearing he's wearing clothes throughout all this. It's okay. not like he's naked in the prosthetics; like he's wearing pants and a shirt and stuff mm-hmm. when you see him marching around. Uh, and, and at the Ig Nobels, he wore the the goat costume and pranced around on stage in it. Hmm. All right, I would hope that. Next time he would be an anteater, uh, but uh, <laughs> that would be more of an, an, an exercise in doppling. Doppling, yes. Uh, we should do a whole episode on doppling. Somewhere. Oh yeah, I think I think there's a there's a big future in doppling. For anyone who's not familiar, this is, we're of course alluding to Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, a fine film. Fine film. Uh, yeah, there's a you're probably familiar with it from in Mystery Science Theater 3000, but it's uh, based on a. A short story by John Varley, I believe. Uh, no, it's a novel, I believe. Yeah, a full-blown novel. Wonderful sci-fi concept. We'll have to come back to it later. <laughs> uh, so I would be, I, I would, I, I would just have to kick myself if I didn't mention that this Thomas Thwaites book, the Goatman book, has some pretty good Amazon reviews. Yeah, the Amazon uh, reviews may, in fact, be better than the book itself. Well, you haven't read the book, Christian. I know. Just, I'm just, I'm just so I'm, grouchy, dude. I'm just grouchy about this guy. Look, okay. I love the people who stick their heads between their legs <laughs> and the other ones we're going to talk about. I love the rocks, but this guy. Ooh, uh, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, what's, your, what's your attitude towards goats alone? I like goats. Okay, so so it's not the animal. No, it's not the goats. It's this guy. Like, it's just that, like, all these other people seem to me to be doing either research or trying to, like, uh, inherently understand the world in a different way. And this feels like he was just preparing to sell a book and, like, he did a photo exhibit in London. So maybe this is more of an artistic exercise as opposed to a... You know, if it was artistic, I guess I would support it more, too. It just seems like... A sort of like look at me like hmm. yeah. moment and maybe i'm just biased because like you guys know like we look at feeds a lot of what's going on in science and news and this guy showed up in my feed constantly for the last two months and mm-hmm. like I, even you before have, the have, bells yeah you have, well you before goat man fatigue. I did, that's it it's <laughs> goat man fatigue i'm just i'm okay. burnt out on goat man well anyway the amazon reviewers did not necessarily share your fatigue one review i want to read this book made me change my outlook on life and how i examine my day every morning i am a goat we are all goats by his book be a goat uh, okay. Another two-star review reads, all lowercase, no punctuation, what the hell? <laughs> uh, several, one, one review says, having lived the last seven years as a goat, I can vouch for the author's <laughs> expertise. I like this one. He does a great job of capturing what it means to go full goat. Uh, and but isn't this, there, like, they complain about how he oh, doesn't... Oh, yeah. yeah. Th- this, this reviewer and, and at least one other I saw complained that he did not talk enough about his sex life as a goat. Huh. Yeah. Well, he actually, so to, to, to clarify it, uh, first of all, he said the prosthetics that he was wearing were very painful when he was going downhill. Uh, and I want to clarify too, he did not sleep with the goats outside because he said it was too cold and rainy. So he would get out of his goat costume and go sleep in a tent with his crew. Uh, he 
traveled with a herd of goats through the Swiss, Swiss Alps for three days, and then he spent another three days by himself as a goat. So six days total, mm. but not at night. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Can you get the full goat experience if you don't get rained on in the middle of the night? Well, I mean, I, I, to come back to Nagel, you cannot get the full goat experience, yeah. period. Yeah. I guess it comes down to to what extent did he get a significant dose of the goat experience as it is accessible to human beings. Yeah. We should clarify too that like, unless you've seen the video, like you may not like have a full understanding of what we're talking about here, but this guy like literally like, uh, ate grass. Like he, he would bend over and like eat grass right off the ground and stuff in his goat performance. And I think like, I remember reading something along the lines of like, he was a little concerned at first that the goat herd wasn't going to accept him and they might attack him with their horns. But then like <laughs> he made friends with one goat and it, I think it he says they of, accepted him in the end. Yeah. In the yeah. end they did. Yeah. That would be my fear that I would be accepted in the end by, by goats. goats. Mm-hmm. That's my fear. About that's humanity. how it would end. Yes. <laughs> Okay, I've got to ask the question, why is this amusing? Well, well, I I feel like we've answered that question. Because it's sniffing poop and goat goat men and mm-hmm. uh and eating earthworms in a badger hole. Animals being people and people being animals, both instantly amusing. It's yeah. like it's always funny when you put an animal in human clothes. Mm-hmm. It's always funny when you put a man in a badger hole and have him eat earthworms. We've got both of those in the Ignobels. We've got rats and pants. And men dressing up like goats or living with badgers. It's all through the looking glass. And we yeah. have a looking glass. You know what I first thought of when I was, when I read about this? I thought of Bella Lugosi's Atomic Superman monologue from Bride of the Monster. Oh, yeah. You remember that when mm-hmm. he, he's, uh, it's in the middle of it, you know, uh, I have no home, hunted, despised, living like an animal. <laughs> the jungle is my home. It's great. <laughs> Maybe those guys said that to themselves every night. Maybe. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. Uh, our first dose of Ig Nobel 2016 uh, for your listening pleasure. But so to hear about the other ones, you need to join us again next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, next time we will be covering even more Ig Nobels. We'll be talking about everything from BS to lying, white horses, Volkswagens, and dead flies. All right, and in the meantime, hey, you want to check out uh, the old Ig Nobel episodes? Then head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find some videos. You'll find blog posts. You'll find links out to our varied uh, social media accounts. Yeah, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram, as I mentioned before. Uh, and also, by the way, you might have seen this on our social media, but if you haven't, I have another podcast outside of How Stuff Works. I do a show called Super Context. Uh, it's myself and my partner, Charlie Bennett. We work together on it, and it is a show that is an autopsy of media, how we consume it, and how it informs everyday culture. It's a little different from the science-y stuff to blow your mind angle. We have episodes on everything from Lady Dynamite to Flannery O'Connor, Nick Cave, The Hateful Eight, and we even did a prime on the medium of podcasting and how it currently works. So you can check that show out also on Twitter and Tumblr or just download it wherever you get podcasts. Uh, and I draw an exclusive cartoon for every episode. If you want to see that, you can see them on, our, on, on the Super 
contact social media channels. But, Joe, stuff to blow your mind wise, where do people write us directly if they want to tell us how they feel about Goatman? Or, you know what I would really like to know this time around? What five traits they think stuff to blow your mind has as a brand? Oh, <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Well, you didn't leave me much to say. I guess it was stuff to blow your mind. Wait, that's not it. Blow the mind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs> 